Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login <laughs> for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle, and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, there's no annual contract. Yes, no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and uh, a little later on in the show, uh, we're going to talk to Jason Lloyd. Uh, it's been 25 years since the Cleveland Browns left Cleveland. Uh, Jason and uh, the staff at The Athletic have an amazing story that uh, might change how you view that. It's really a fun conversation, but could not be more excited uh, to begin with uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, author and just all around great human being, uh, Molly Knight's with us. Molly, welcome. Well, that's so nice of you to say. Thank you. I, you've been one of my favorite writers. We, my friends and I, used to read you. Um, you know, in college and, and when we first moved to New York, and when you were just doing stuff with the I think Kansas City Star, right? Um, wow, Kansas, going way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just like, oh my gosh, because you were the one of the. You were one of the few um, writers who stood out for not being for not the wrong reasons, like for not being a jackass. So, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's that's always been my entire goal in life yeah. is just to not be one of the jackasses. That's yeah. literally the only thing I wanted. That's <laughs> your Molly. You know, you're awesome. I love you. And uh, and just think the world of, of your work. And we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, I hope, okay. uh, today. But what I really want to start off with, obviously, is the Dodgers. And uh, so for the, I mean, I'll have you explain this, but as I sure. understand it, not only are you a, a lifelong uh, Los Angeles, I don't even know how to say it, person <laughs> from Los Angeles. Is yeah. it Los Angelino? Los Angelino, yeah. I, yeah, I you'll identify, go with that. Yeah. I have read that you are a fifth generation Los Angelino. Is this I correct? Am. I am. That's and I crazy. take I take great pride in that because like my people were so, you know, they were in Ireland and England and that wasn't working out. So then they went to New York and then, you know, they couldn't find work there. That wasn't working out. So then they like kept, they went to Iowa and Ohio and then like that wasn't working out. So <laughs> it was sort of like, I mean, when you think about kind of getting on like a covered wagon or whatever it was they did, because things were so bad and they were so poor or they were or they were just kind of rebels or outcasts or didn't fit in with the religion or whatever it was that they were like, yes, let's get on the Oregon Trail or whatever and risk dying of dysentery or, you know, whatever to just 
to go out to this place that we don't really know anything about. Um, and I think that there's like, there's always, for me, you know, just with the Pacific Ocean, there's always been this sense of, of possibility and promise and like rebirth. And I think I, um, I definitely feel like I inherited that just all the way down. I think it's in my bones. And so it's something I'm really proud of. And so when people like, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this podcast, but you know, sure. when people, Absolutely. when people constantly shit on LA, I'm like, you have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. I mean, yeah, Hollywood is awful. You know, I get that. And I don't like right. seeing, you know, 50 to 60 year old women with the same face everywhere um that that part sucks but right you know this is like the land of opportunity and some really brave hardcore adventure adventuring swashbuckling people came out here and discovered like the greatest place on earth really i mean we've got the best climate the, the ocean the mountains the desert everything in between so um so i've, I've got a lot of los angeles pride running through my veins well, yeah, fifth generation. I mean, yeah. of course, you know, I mean, that that go back. So fifth generation, like what year are we going back to? 18 something. My great. Oh, my gosh. My great, great, uh, ooh, great grandfather was living in a hotel here at one point because they had like whatever the if, if you want to call it a hotel, whatever was set up at that point <laughs> um, to just kind of do, do prospecting and trying to figure out how to get water to this. Uh, region and and that kind of stuff so it's it's incredible i just find it incredible i you know i love i love los angeles actually i'm I'm one of those that that loves it and my wife loves it we we always uh talk about uh you know moving there someday and and uh you know when when the prices come down so not anytime soon but um oh yeah i'll never i'll never own a house here for to be clear (laughs) so to be clear to all of your listeners (laughs) I will be renting an apartment here for the rest of my life. Um, I do not have a trust. I do not have a trust fund. Uh, no, but, no. <laughs> but yes, but yes. It's it's incredible. No, but I did when I wrote uh, my last book, the uh, the Harry Houdini book. Um, he, you know, Houdini would come to L.A. It's kind of L.A. and San Francisco both kind of launched his career in the United States and. So he was in Los Angeles and did one of his you know most famous things there, a couple of his most famous escapes there, and like it was a tiny place yeah. at that time. I mean, you know, comparative you know to everything in the East, it was just this tiny place. That's not that long ago to think that L.A. was you know, hundred thousand people, uh, you know, less than a hundred years ago. It's it's anyway. I I I love the whole the whole thing. So you being a full blooded full-fledged la person yeah and a writer who who is who has written about the dodgers written a whole book about the dodgers yeah what what the heck has this year meant to you what what has this been like for you i mean it's been crazy i was um i don't know i mean i was raised um in a in a family that loved la sports really um lakers and dodgers the, uh, the the two sports team uh, the two NFL teams moved away when I was young, young and didn't um, I had not yet been old enough to go to a uh, yeah well my parents would not have taken me to a Raiders game but I did not you know get to experience <laughs> you know going to a Rams game and all that so for them they had sure. gone to USC so it was you know when I was in high school and and and, and around that age going going to USC football games and. They were good, and so that was sort of the football team in town, but it was really the Lakers and the Dodgers. And then 
I went off to college and I, you know, got it kind of involved in my own life and friends and boyfriends and we all, all the drama of what I was going to do with my life. And I, right. I wasn't really watching a lot of TV or following sports that closely. And then after I moved to New York, it was um, right after college and I was 21. Um, it was really just uh, after a couple of years, I kind of started missing L.A. And it, for, honestly, it was really just I, I got the uh, I, I couldn't afford the uh, MLB package to watch to watch the games. But I splurged to get the uh, MLB radio so I could listen. And um, I, I really you know, I found myself going out to the bars as you do in New York when you're 23. And then I'd come home and listen to Vince Gully every night. And as, cl- as cliche as it was, you know, I'd, I'd listen to him and it was just this you know, the warm summer night, it was just a soothing voice. And, yes. um, and that's what really, I think, as an adult, my Laker fandom kind of waned, you know, I just was kind of like, whatever. But but for me, it was it was really Vin um, telling the story. And then and then just as the sort of that was as the revolution of all the numbers and everything was happening, Moneyball, and really, really fascinating, really, really smart people getting involved in the game, in addition to all the things I loved about it as a kid, like counting the beach balls and, and <laughs> counting the number of times the wave would make it around Dodger Stadium in my because I, I kept score. Um, so for me, it was just like it kind of hit that little that little itch I have as a, as a nerd. Um, that, that got me really, really fascinated and into it, and I think it was uh, – being being sort of and then becoming a writer around that time and and becoming a sports writer and kind of seeing the all the new the new wave like smart people pushing up against this old way of doing thing that was not efficient and um you know and the nerds won um which is funny because now i i don't feel as much of a nerd as i used to um Mm -hmm. i'm a little bit i'm coming a little bit back towards uh not the way it was, but I'm a little bit like, Ugh, let's put the ball in play, you know, like <laughs> maybe I, like, like, huh, maybe I, maybe I could hear an argument for banning the shift. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, I'm, I'm like, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little, I, I could be talked into some, to, to not being so new school, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it was really just the game itself that, um, cause my allegiance to the Lakers is. I mean, I was happy the Lakers won for my for my city, for my family, my people in my life who were happy. But baseball is just different. I mean, baseball yeah. just breaks your heart um, and, and rips your guts out. And it's just it's the worst slash best game. So when a team finally wins it all, it's just it's just amazing. It's just incredible. Sorry, that was a it's, long-winded answer. No, no, felt. this is great. Because we're going to come back to the oh, yeah. old, school, old school versus new school thing. We're going to sure. come back to that in a few minutes. Um all right, but I want to I want to first put some timing on this. So yeah. you're you're considerably younger than me. Obviously, you were yeah. reading me in college, so so we know that. Yeah. Uh, do you go back to the uh, Kirk Gibson game, or were you too young to appreciate? That? I was uh, I was five and in bed and missed it. Um, <laughs> okay. My first my first. Uh, I had not yet been taken to a Dodger game because that was the also the year my sister was born. And so it just seemed like, you know, too much for parents to take a five-year-old and an oh, infant. Right. Yep. Um, my first game, I believe we, we looked back through photos and tried to find any, you know, any, any evidence. The first photographic evidence of my having gone to Dodger Stadium for a baseball game was in 1989 so for a while okay. i actually thought i was the curse <laughs> um 
Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, I I remember what I don't remember. Um, but you know that was weird because back then LA teams were winning all the all time. The so it was like the Lakers and the Dodgers won that year. You know, the Lakers and the Dodgers had already won that decade. So it was like yep. no one was going to wake me up and be like, you have to see Oral Hershiser strike out Tony Phillips to win this game because it's never going to happen again. Um, there was just a sense of like, yeah, these teams are good. Um, so, I mean, I was uh, I was with my sister and um, my sister has a two-year-old daughter and I was like, freaking out that we had to wake her up uh and she was like absolutely not especially because it's daylight savings i will murder you um coming up so um but but we did get a lot of photos of her she was very much watching games and stuff so i felt okay about that um that's awesome but i do remember something i do remember was um my parents uh and the adults being happy um and my parents uh uh, my parents divorced and you know there, there was uh, the happy memories of everybody being happy with each other are, are nice memories for me to have and yeah. so I, re- I, I do remember that I remember the adults being happy and I and when you're a kid and all the adults in the in your life are happy it's just like it's the best feeling it really is you just you feel it you know so I, I remember that so that's cool. Yeah. I mean, you look. There was no way to know. I mean, it's great that yeah. that you've you've uh, uh, given your your two year old niece the memory of, uh, of yeah. this one way or another. But yeah. you know, Dodgers are probably not going to wait another thirty two years before you, winning again. We don't know so, that. We don't know. I mean, we, we think. don't know. We think. But but I would think. Yeah. Of course, we would have said the same thing in eighty eight. Uh, but the thing yeah. is, in eighty eight, I mean, you know, you you look back at the team as you have, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, there were a lot of good things happened to that team to get them. Sure. To, it's not like you looked at that team and thought, oh, they're going to win oh, you know, right. three more, right, right? right? You thought that was this team. You look at this team and you feel like, well, I don't see an end. To, I mean, they might not win another one, but yeah. they'll be in position to win them for another five to ten years, don't you think? I think actually the next one will be a lot easier, too, because I think and we saw this with Kershaw year in and year out. Um, I think that there was just this. I don't think it was um, like, oh, I can't pitch under pressure or any of that. I think it was just that these guys were, it was like they were trying to do too much. They were trying yeah. to, to win, you know, four championships in one. And, 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 and um, even with Kershaw taking the ball on short rest so many times, or when, when someone like Walker Bueller, who, by the way, nobody would question that guy's guts or that guy's no. big game stuff. And him just just confidently saying, you know what, I'm not comfortable pitching on three days rest, and like that's fine, you know, no one's questioning his manhood, right? Um, so I think you know this year we saw what happened when Clayton Kershaw was just asked to be Clayton Kershaw and not to yes. be Clayton Kershaw plus a reliever plus you know a guy who could go on three days rest, right? And so now that they've done it, now that they've shown they can do it, I think. You know, now it's like, oh, so there is no curse. There is no whatever. We can just go be ourselves. And if we lose, we lose because we got beat by a better team, right? Um, not because we're somehow, we don't have what it takes. You know, I think it's, I think it'll be easier for them going forward. And now, repeating is never easy, ever. Right. For various reasons. Um, but I don't know if that will hold next year, too, since the season was shorter. 
Although, if you ask any of these guys, this season felt just as long, if not longer than any other season, <laughs> mentally. Um, so I we'll actually see. have a, a theory on this. Yeah, um, I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a theory. Well, look, I, I don't think it's it's anybody would be surprised uh, by by my theory that when you win, part of part of the next year, the you know the the celebration goes on right. for a while. You know, I mean, I I to me it was not surprising at all when I, I think a lot of the 2016 cops, right? You right. win and you finally win. And then you spend the whole next year giving everybody in Chicago world series rings and, and yeah. uh, oh. you know, I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on and on. And because this year was so weird, I mean, of course yep. LA is going to celebrate it, but it, I don't sure. think it's going to be quite the same level of celebration as as it would in, in a normal year for for any number of reasons, not just because the season's shorter, but because yeah. we're all going through oh. so much and and it's just different, you I, know. I think you're absolutely right, and I mean, just imagine like all the appearances those Cubs players had to make, you yes. know, and and anytime they walked into a restaurant, of course, everybody's buying them drinks and this. <laughs> I mean, it was right. just um, and that. I mean, and, and even speaking as somebody who is obviously, you know nowhere near in the stratosphere as famous as say a Chris Bryant or an Anthony Rizzo or whatever like it can be <laughs> it can be tiring to um to have to make appearances or do stuff and and to feel yeah like you've got to talk to a lot of people it's 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 you know and that's me at like a book signing with 30 people right like we're talking about oh my gosh can you imagine like everybody wants wants those guys to come talk to their school or come do this or come do that and it's all of course yes. with the best intentions and so positive and wonderful but i mean it can be exhausting and um they would never say that 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 you know that making all those appearances made it hard for them to win but of course it you know you only have so much energy in your little bat in your little iphone battery when you wake up in the morning you know and and it's hard so <laughs> Um, I think you're right. Agreed. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, it's 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 very very interesting, and and you know, looking going forward, there are a couple of specific people I want to talk to you about, and obviously you've already mentioned sure. one. Uh, Clayton Kershaw was a major character in uh, in your book, yeah. uh, the the best team money can buy. Uh, he's a major character for all of us in sports writing. Uh, you know, here on this podcast, we have spent hours and hours and hours. Uh, talk about how much we love Clayton Kershaw and how sad we were that the Kershaw narrative just kept growing and growing. And, and it was, you know, the, as you said, there was a lot going on there. There were a lot of times where they asked Clayton Kershaw to be superhuman, which, you know, which is impossible for anybody to live up to. And, and, and then there were other times that it just, for one reason or another, it didn't quite work out for him. And then there were great performances in between there, but, but all of it added up to this moment where you thought, you know, if he could just have, uh, you know, a good world series here, it's over, you know, the thing is over. And now it does feel over. And I'm, I'm, curious you know your thoughts i know that you know you've 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 spent a lot of time with him i know that in the past you've even talked about sort of the similar mindsets you two have what what, what is your thought about clayton kershaw in this postseason you know what I, I really liked about what happened with him in the world series because obviously um we've all seen i mean look he he's a guy who came out and, and pitched 
you know, one of the best games ever in, the, I mean, for him anyway, in, in game one of the 2017 yes. World Series. So, Amazing. I mean, he was incredible. So it wasn't like, oh, this guy chokes under the big, you know, big moments. It's just for whatever reason, um, things happened at different times. Yeah, he was bad at certain times. And there were other times when he was a victim to bad luck. And we won't even get into the Astros and Minute Maid <laughs> that year. But right. one of the things I really that really mattered, I think, to me in, in this World Series was seeing, okay, he came out in game one and he was awesome. He had all of his stuff working. His slider was a, wasn't, wasn't great at the first inning. And then it was just lights out, game over. Yeah. And he showed that he showed the type of Hall of Fame pitcher that he was, and like like they had no chance. And then in game what, five, was it five? Yeah, five. He came back, and and he, and he didn't have it. I mean, he didn't have it. He was he was for him, you know. Right. I mean, he right. was okay. He was, but he and it was like, oh God, here we go. They got a, they got a a, a a three hopper and then a double and as runners on second third no out and oh shit you know here we go yeah. something but something's gonna happen they don't get they're not gonna give him any run support and you know they're gonna lose this game three to one and then kurt and then kershaw is the biggest choker of all time right and then he got out of it and it was like yeah. he got that pop-up got that strikeout and then manny margot and you know i i thought it was a great attempt to steal home and i mean he almost made it i thought it was awesome um it took a fantastic play you almost forced him into a balk there he's yeah. concerned with kiermeyer up and you know with the lefty up and I, I thought it was i wish more teams would do it and he got him and then there was just this sense of like oh my god you know he's gonna there's there's no excuses he went out there tonight did not have his best stuff and he's still gonna win this game and i i and that's what has been that that's what's been missing in the past in, in, in some of these playoff games when he didn't have his best stuff and and he couldn't he couldn't finish off those batters or he didn't get the lucky breaks or the lucky whatever whatever it was or you know Pedro Baez would come into the game and allow the inherited runners to score and inflate his ERA. It just seemed like something finally went his way. Um, and I, I loved that about I, I just I loved that you know that he found a way to win and I, we always say that like, the best players, you know, whatever sport it is, and in, in the NBA, NFL, NHL, you know, they don't have their best stuff, or they're not feeling 100%, or some, you know, something's not going right, but they they find a way, right? They find a way to do it, and that's what he did, and I and I just I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it is it is the ultimate thing, and you do you hear it across in golf and tennis and in yep. individual sports and team sports that, and they talk about that being their proudest moments you know are are yeah. the the days that i you know the, the days that that i've heard kershaw talk about it you know the days that you have it i mean i love his mindset his mindset we did a piece with him uh when i i got i was lucky enough to write uh the movie that they show at the uh baseball hall of fame oh, and awesome. and which is really cool and i did an interview with with clayton Kershaw. it wasn't a long one but it was an interview with with clayton kershaw talking about this and the, the crazy things that, that he said, and I, I know he said things to you as well, similar yeah. to this. He believes, he's like, I've got a huge advantage as a pitcher. I, the hitter should never get a hit off of me. Yep. It's like, you know, everybody knows that, you know, that that hitters, you know, if, if a hitter gets a hit three out of ten times, that's the old cliche. You know, you're, you're going to the Hall of Fame. So he goes, so I have this huge advantage. So for me, it's like, it's, it's like I should always get them out. Like, yep. they should never get a hit off me. And, and I think for him 
to to be in that situation where he was not only did he not have his stuff, he was in real trouble early. And and it was, you know, a single there and you just know it's going to go bad, right? You just know. And for him to get out of that thing and then pitch really well, I mean, he's just getting stronger and, and you know, as, as the whole thing went on, uh, it was great. You know, it was just great. And I was so happy to see, you know, this, this icon of our time uh, in baseball have an iconic moment. I, I just think that was awesome. I do too. And it's something that was, um, you know, I guess for me as a sports fan, I, I just, I love, I love watching most sports and, I really only feel allegiance to the Dodgers and the and the Stanford football team. Um, and but otherwise, you know, I, I just I'll pick players I enjoy watching. Yes. And I and I and I for whatever reason, whether I like the way they play or I like who they are or something. I mean, I I've, I, I think G-Man Choi is incredible. I mean, I just love yes. him. I love the way he played. I, I mean, I'll it just I mean, obviously, and then we of course we have our Fernando Tatis Juniors and you know, the players who were obviously everyone's favorite, but, but for me, it was devastating to kind of watching all these people dunking on Kershaw. And I understand, you know, Giants fans or whoever else that, that's, that's one thing that's fine. But, but part of me is just like, why are you going out of your way to torture someone who is like an objectively like wonderful human being who like literally would like to give all of his money away at some point to benefit, you know, children, who in need like what are what are we what are we doing here and that to me is just like i mean i just speaks to terrible people on the internet and i can't get too wrapped up in that but like right like what are we what are we doing here um so i but i do think that they're i mean they were very quiet those people have gone into witness protection you know after this (laughs) um and so for me it was great to see uh him triumph as a as a, a on a human level um, cause not a lot of these athletes are all that, are all that sparkling of, you know, individuals. A lot of them are, are, they're fine, you know, they're whatever, but there are some guys who are just, um, fantastic humans and to see them shine after having gone through what we know they went through. It's just, it makes you feel good. You know, it just, it's just nice. It makes you feel, um, happy. It's a nice human story to see that, to see someone who has earned it, to see, to feel happy for one of the good guys so that was um it was really really um satisfying for me i think and just seeing yeah, his could, face couldn't agree more i just i mean look he's <laughs> he's a great guy he's also a legend i mean yeah. it's you know that's that's that to me like like there are lots of people lots there are any number of players in any sport that I like, yep. you know, I after talking to them or getting to know about them, and I think, oh, that's a great person. I want Steph Curry to make every shot, yep. right? Because because yep. I love that guy. Yep. He's awesome, you know. And 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 people that you know, I, I actually was. I just saw a list that you were talking about some of your favorite players, and th- some of them are some of my favorite players, Raul Abanez or Mike oh, Sweeney yeah. or guys like that, yeah. right? Who you're just like, oh, I just want them to succeed because they're such good people. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that's one side of it. But the other side of it for me, for Kershaw, is we are talking about the pitcher of our generation. We are talking sure. about one of the greatest. You know, I mean, I I put him 70-something on the my Baseball 100, the 100 greatest players, and people wrote in angrily that I had him too high, which yeah. I think is – well, I think he's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is a guy in mid-career. I mean, he's still got years to pitch, and and he's already one of the greatest players of all time. And and to see 
that sort of besmirched by, you know, a, a, a sort of a messy postseason yep. life, yep. you know, I, just to see that fade away made me feel great. It's o- it just made it, me feel so good. It's over with, too. It's over. And yeah. he's got his ring. And baseball, and this is a whole nother show, but, you know, in the NBA, we, we've seen how in the NBA, a player like LeBron James um, can go to three different franchises right. and win title. Right. Obviously, obviously good players around him, right? He doesn't win without Anthony Davis or Dwayne Wade or, you know, different, different um, Kevin Love or Kyrie or those guys. But like, but that can happen in, in, in the NBA and in, in, in the MLB, in MLB, especially with a pitcher, like one dominant starting pitcher is not winning uh, a team, a world series. I mean, look at Mike Trout, like he's yeah. the best player in the universe and the angels have made the playoffs one time with him on their team. So it's 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 frustrating to think that a guy like Kershaw could have that kind of ding against him. I mean, obviously he was making a Hall of Fame regardless, but could have that kind of ding against him when there's just so little control one one baseball player has over their team winning the World Series. But then again, they came so they they were they were in it so many times um, that it was that it was really starting to become. Like, oh, my God, you know, like that that glaring thing you first thought about when you thought about him. But now it's over. It doesn't matter that he's a World Series champion. He pitched well enough in the World Series to to be MVP. I mean, of course, Corey Seager hit like 500. So you can't argue. <laughs> you can't argue with that. Um, but right. But it wasn't like he sucked in the World Series and they won anyways. No, like he won two of the four games, you know, and so it set the tone in game one. So. Um, it's that, that whole thing is over. Um, and Dave, yeah, David, over. David Price did a similar thing. Um, obviously he's not the best pitcher of a generation, but he struggled even worse than Kershaw, um, in the playoffs. And then he was great in 18 and, and, um, he's got a ring and, and that whole narrative is done. So, so it's yeah, nice I, to see that. It is nice. And, and a lot of those guys don't get that second or third chance to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they just, they just are never on another Great team. They get, you know, that was the Ted Williams thing. Ugh, you know, Ted Williams, know. people say Ted Williams choked because he was in one World Series and he hit 260 or something. And, and, and it's like, you know, uh, he never got another chance. Yeah, and it's, and it's absurd. And he played in the same division as the Yankees before the wild card era. I mean, let's give him, <laughs> right. let's give him a break here. I mean, my God, Ted Williams in this day and age with 16 playoff teams, you know. Ted Williams could wound up being the all-time. He could be the Randy Rosarena of you know <laughs> of Randy Rosarenas, right? Like that's <laughs> exactly right. It's exactly well, Barry Bonds. That was how Barry Bonds ended. You know, oh, I mean, obviously yeah. it was a different Barry Bonds, but I mean, right. still, you know, can't hit the postseason. Can't hit the postseason. Okay, what about the greatest postseason Ever. in the history of the world? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very <laughs> funny. All right, you you talked about this, so I want to get back to sure. this. We said we would. Uh, the new school, old school thing, obviously it's, it's, it means a lot of different things to a lot of sure. different people, but you mentioned the Manuel Margot stolen base, right. uh, the attempted stolen base, which was wonderful. Oh, Just yeah. wonderful. Yeah. We saw in game, I guess it was game six or game five or game six. I guess we saw, I, I remember writing it down. You have a, a stolen base of attempted stolen base of home. You had a triple, you had a bunch of stolen bases, um, Mookie was, 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 you know, just mesmerizing on the base paths. And, you know, you saw some, some great defensive plays, of course, throughout the postseason. And there were times that you felt like, well, why can't they get back to some of this? You yeah. know, why? I mean, no matter how much you love, I love, uh, the numbers and, and, and this, and I don't know, you know, look, there, some of this is, is gets, 
pushed on uh, analysis. Obviously, sure. like the the Kevin Cash pulling of of uh, of um, you know, Blake Snell in, right. in Game Six. You know, it gets pushed on analysis. Some of this is is due to the fact these guys are just better yeah. than they used to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 harder to put the ball in play against guys that are throwing 100 miles an hour, and it's it's harder to to pitch to lineups where every person in the lineup can hit home runs. I mean, it's just we're in a different time frame than than we used to be. That said. Don't you miss some of that, you know? Oh, sure. I mean, don't you miss oh. some of what it used to be? Oh, yeah. And I think we're once again we're missing, you know, room for some nuance. I mean, I am I am fully I fully I, I've seen the numbers and I've seen it with my own eyes that pitchers get worse the third time through. And it also makes yes. sense because if if you're a hitter and, you know, you you might not see a guy's curveball the first time up or a guy's slider the first time up and but 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 the more you see him the better you're going to get regardless of if the guy's tiring or not you will have seen more of his pitches i so i am on board with like yeah i don't want you know my guys like i don't want tony gonsolin or dustin may or even rios or some of these younger guys going the third time through unless there's like a 9 to nothing lead and i'm trying right. to preserve my arms i get that so I'm I'm on board with that, but at the same time, you know, I watched every Dodger game this year, and uh, they're a dynamite lineup. And Blake Snell had them. I mean, he, they they were a mess against him. He was mess. the best. They were a mess. And they didn't see a lot of good pitching this year. You know, they had one of the easier schedules. I mean, it was a weird season, but they didn't see a lot of aces this year. They saw Zach Gallen, and he was great. Uh, Lance Lynn wasn't didn't have his best stuff when they saw him. They really right. didn't see like the top guys. I mean, they didn't face. If you look at the guys who were, um, they didn't see Trevor Trevor Bauer or Shane Bieber or you Darvish or you know these guys that were that were or Jake Degrom. You know the the the, the monsters out there. They didn't see any of the yeah. guys that the Nationals have. So it was kind of like I mean he was toying with them. Um, and Glass now with the way he pitches that he was a terrible. I mean the, the Matt Dodgers were a terrible matchup for him because he could, really couldn't go in and out. But the yes, but 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 Snell, my God, in that case you you know you override the system and you just let him go and you live and die with that. Um, I just uh, that was that was rough, but. Um, it was. I my feeling on that was, you know, Glass now is a completely different kind of pitcher. By yeah. the way, we. Uh, you, oh, I'm sorry, our, I meant our, Snell. I'm, did I say Glass now? I meant Snell. No, no, no. Oh, you, yeah. you were talking about how Glass now was different, and he was. They were beating up on Glass yeah. now. Your, your friend and my friend Brandon McCarthy and oh, I yeah. uh, were texting back and forth about how much we love watching Blake Snell and how little oh, yes. we like watching Tyler Glass now. Just how Glass it's now? like he's horrid to watch. I mean, he's he's an amazing oh. talent. But he, he's horrible to watch. He was he was one of my oh, he was like my fantasy team pitcher this year, <laughs> and it was incredible. The dude would have like he had like thirty one innings pitch, like sixty four strikeouts and an ERA of five. And I'm looking yeah. at it and I'm going, how is this possible? Because I wasn't watching a lot of their games. So then I started tuning into their games and I was just like, oh my god, like I see how this is. possible possible and that's yeah. exactly what he what the Dodgers did to him and it was just like yes. well no. he throws he yeah. just throws he just throws, he just throws. same thing yeah. over and over and look it's great stuff but it's like you can't yeah not against a great line of like the Dodgers but no. Snell I thought that the key I've said this on on this podcast before but I thought the key to me was you felt Every single Dodger breathed a sigh of relief oh, when he yeah. got pulled. Oh, you saw right? Mookie smiling because he's got the, smiling. One of the best smiles in the world and he can't hide it. 
Like he can't. Like a lot of these guys try to be cool, you know, and like act like stuff doesn't doesn't matter to them. Like they try to act tough, but Mookie doesn't do that. And he was just like grinning ear to ear. <laughs> and then when I saw who they were bringing in, I was like, oh my like, what? god, <laughs> this guy hasn't gotten anybody out. And oh, and it was just you just knew what was going to happen. But but um, yeah, it was it was I I loved and the other thing too was that these two teams are arguably the two analytically most analytically minded yes. teams in baseball but they were still pushing the envelope i mean i love that the rays were trying to take the extra base every single time and forcing yes. the dodgers to make great plays to get them you know and, and that Mookie was it. aggressive on the base paths and that both teams were um sure they were positioned great like that's part of the analytics it's just how well their their defense is positioned but they were also making such great plays out there um you know to, to rob home runs or to to just i don't know i just i thought it was a, a, a really well played uh series um the rays didn't have enough in the end but i i i loved it and i was joking that they should make a stole like if you steal home you should get two runs so more people right. would try it it's not a bad idea people were like oh he's a bonehead no he's not two outs two strikes I think it was two strikes. I mean, he's, he's, and he just about made just it. I mean, it's, it's it. hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was, it was razor close. And, and here's the thing. It's like, it was so fun. Oh it my was God. so wonderful. It was the, yeah. it's the, it's the moment I will take away. One of the moments I will take away from 2020 oh. was, Oh, you remember when Margot tried to steal home? I mean, that's, that's what baseball's supposed to be. It's supposed to give us moments and and when they're when you completely rule out things that are not like like uh, percentage baseball, you yeah. know the way the way that it is. I mean, it does steal some of the fun of the game. When I, I think when I was a little kid, I'll tell you, you know, my favorite play, Dodger players were Brett Butler and Delino yeah. DeShields, and it was because <laughs> they were stealing bases, and yes. you know because. You go to a game and even if you go see the best player, you know, they had Mike Piazza and they had other good players. And but sometimes they go 0 for 4. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. Like you just they don't even get on base. Right. But if you get one of those little guys on base, whether it's from a single or a fielder's choice or a walk or whatever, you're watching them the whole time because you're like, oh, my gosh, are they going to try to steal? And it's so exciting. Um, and that's one of the things for me for Mookie, which is why I think he's the best player in the game. Um, and, and I, I mean, I would, I would uh, pay, buy a ticket to see him more than I would to, to see Mike Trout if I were, you know, a 12 year old, because he's, well, I mean, my parents would, um, but <laughs> because he doesn't have to get a hit. I mean, he's so thrilling to watch on the Bates path. He's yes. so thrilling to watch race after a ball. He's small, which I think, um, resonates with kids or at least it did for me i always no, rooted I for the so. smaller kid you know like the guy who wasn't the huge dude i just thought it was exciting um i don't know there's ways to impact he, he, I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean to sound like oh it can impact the game in so many ways but like he doesn't have to get a hit for it for him to do something exciting and i think that's why the dodger fans loved yasiel puig so much i mean obviously he was a bit of a bonehead in certain situations. He did not run the base as well, but he did something. He did exciting things. And that's what time. we're all looking for. Right. I mean, we're all just but, looking for joy and like the great uh, you know, Jay, Jane Levy said, you don't take joy out of the lineup. And that's what they did. That's what Boston did when they traded 
Betts. You know, they took joy out of the lineup. Just a That's exactly huge right. mistake. I, it's, it's just such an underrated part. Again, of course, here on this podcast, Mike Schur and I, uh, we, we went through and explained why uh, we think Mike Trout, uh, and we love Mike Trout, oh. but we think Mookie Betts is 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 has taken his place, and yeah. it involved various intangibles, such as which one you would rather take to uh, IKEA if if you were if you were in need of of buying uh, you know a, yeah. a, a table or something, and yep. and uh, and which one you'd rather take to a breakfast buffet. So it all worked out that it it led to Mookie, and and look, I think just seeing Mookie smile, I mean not. You know, it's it's natural. It's yeah. it's uh, it's a part of who he is, and that's not to say he gets more joy out of the game than Mike Trout does. Mike Trout, um, you know, gets tremendous joy out of the game, but Mookie exudes joy in a way that is it's like a gift. I mean, it really is. You yeah. you just you see him and he smiles and you feel great. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I, we need to start asking twelve year olds because that's when I fell in love with the game. You know, that's when I started. Uh, getting serious and getting my baseball cards and taking very seriously keeping score and like learning who everybody was. And I had my favorite players for various reasons. And we need to start talking to kids about who they like and why, because it's not rocket science. I mean, if somebody looks like they're having fun, if somebody makes you go, ooh, you know, or somebody makes you want to buy a poster or, or buy the T-shirt or whatever, then that's 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 it. That's the whole game. Um, and Betts is that person. You know, if I were 12, I'd have a Betts poster on my wall next to um, uh, Madonna or Madonna. Um, I don't remember when I was 12. Who, who was it? Paula Abdul. <laughs> no. It was Jan- so now Janet Jackson. Like- Janet Jackson. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, it would have been, or, yeah, Janet Jackson or um, or somebody, um, you know, just uh, you want, yeah, I don't know. You, you, you want, you want fun. You want joy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's. Look, I think it's a huge, huge part of the game, and and something I think that 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 baseball needs to look hard at. I, you know, there's there are only so many things that that can be done, but uh, when you have a guy like Mookie Betts, oh, and and let's say it, I mean, it was a joy to watch Randy Rosarena oh, play baseball. Oh, oh my god, just a joy oh. to watch him play. And I'm and you I'm know? sitting here trying to think to myself as I watch him, like. In the first inning of game six and Gonsolin makes a great pit outside pitch to him, you know, pitching around him basically. And a Rosarena just yeah. flicks his wrists and knocks <laughs> it over the fence. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, like, is this a, are, are we looking at Yasiel? Puig? Are we looking at the first like month, month of, of Yasiel Puig? Puig? Yes. Yes. Or are we looking at like, you know, Barry Bonds or right. what are right. we like a younger, you know, Barry Bonds with um who can run or whatever. Like, what are we looking at here? Because, and I'm thinking, oh my God, the poor Cardinal. I mean, it's possible. I mean, nobody can keep that pace up. Right. And it's possible. They start, the Dodgers started throwing him change ups and that got a little dicey for him, but you know, he's going to readjust. I don't know. I am so hyped to see what he's going to do. Um, next year. I feel horrible for, uh, for Cardinals, uh, front office people. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that'll be that'll be crazy to see. Like, where do you draft him in your fantasy league next year? He's gonna uh, go. He's... I mean, uh, yeah, he yeah, he's so good. I mean, I look, it, it, yeah. it, 
I, I was there too. I know you were there yeah. for that first month of Puig oh, when, yeah. when it was when it was ridiculous. I yeah. mean, he was he was Willie Mays yeah, and Joe DiMaggio, DiMaggio yeah. and yeah, it was it was absurd. It was just an absurdity. Um, and I'm not going to say that during that time that I thought, oh, this is going to fade. I mean, I it it was so incredible to watch. You just wanted to enjoy it. But there does feel like something durable I, about a Rosarena, the way he swings. It's incredible. We could have been, and you know what? If we could take an instruction and had been, had worked on yes. the various things, he could have been a perennial all-star. I mean, he, yeah. he's, he had the time. So let's just say, I mean, if, if a Rosarena is, is, um, is coachable and is... Uh, it, it, it and works hard and shows up early and and is willing to take his lumps and you know because they're going to adjust to him and it's going to be rough and he's going to have to adjust right back and there's no I mean from what I saw from him in that series because he wasn't just hit he wasn't just punishing mistakes you know he was beating good pitches uh, and that's where it's like okay this guy is potentially scary and then you realize like all he did was hit in the minors too so yeah. I yeah. mean, that's... Well, and to all parts of the field. I mean, it yeah. was just oh, stunning yeah, exactly. to watch. Yeah. Stunning to watch. Yeah. Just amazing. All right. Before I let you go, I need to, I, I do want to ask you, sure. uh, so we would get back to this. So give me the sort of short version of how this happened for you, how how you became uh, a writer and an author, because, <laughs> you know, we know you're, you're, you're from Los Angeles. Yeah. You were a sports fan from your earliest days, right? Yep. You loved sports, yep. but you, but you did sort of walk away from it. I and did. then you went to New York. So fill us in. How did this happen? Well, I wanted to be a doctor, a pediatrician. I went to Stanford and got a biology degree. And then my senior year, I, um, I could no longer stand another organic chemistry class. And so, um, I did not, <laughs> that's bad to find that out your senior year. <laughs> I know I still, I, I, I got my degree, but I, I did not fulfill all my pre-med requirements. I didn't, I just, I decided it wasn't for me kind of had a, uh, I guess a quarter life crisis, uh, was writing a lot about it. Um, was being, was de- realized I needed a big, 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 big changes, you know, broke up with my longtime boyfriend, moved to New York to start over. It's all like very dramatic. And then um, found a lot of solace in writing. And I never had any writing experience. I just would write in my journal. I I, I uh, got a Tumblr, a Tumblog, you know, and that was sure, very, very sure. exciting. You know, the first time I ever got a comment from some guy that I didn't know. It was like the thrill of my life. And then, um, no, was this sports you were no, writing on Tumblr music, or was it everything? Music. I was, I was um, oh, listening yeah. to a lot of, uh, uh, emo, uh, and music and writing about it and reviewing it and writing some really snarky reviews and kind of being a dick. And then, um, <laughs> and then I was bartending to pay the, pay my rent and everyone was thrilled about that. Now, what were you hoping was going to happen? What were you hoping was going to happen for you in New York? I, don't, when you I was going to become a writer, uh, but I didn't know. Oh, you what, did. Yeah. But you I did. didn't know in what and or what I was doing. And everyone was thrilled that I was taking my Stanford biology degree in bartending. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, somebody, <sighs> Somebody said, oh, I, somebody at NYU was writing for this music magazine that's now defunct and said, would you, uh, I've got a term paper. Can you review these CDs for me? And I did. And then from there, let me write features. And so then I started like, it was pretty cool because it was when those, when bands like the Arcade Fire and Kings of Leon and yeah. the Libertines and all those bands were coming up. So I'd get to hang out with them and write all about them. 
And then from there... Um, so this is kind of almost famous-ish, a little a bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, um, uh, I mean, because we were all like the same age, or I was a little younger than they were. So, um, but yeah, and then, and then from there, um, I got an internship at uh, Men's Magazine, and then the editor there left and went to ESPN and took me with him, and that's sort of how that happened. So wow. I was at ESPN Magazine for about... Uh oh, seven years. Moved back to LA. Wrote my Dodger book, and then here I am now. So amazing! Now, sh- were you a good bartender? Version. Oh, I was a terrible bartender, actually. <laughs> come, come to find out, because you know what? My head was always in a book. I just pour a right? drink and go back to my corner and read my book. I read so many books <laughs> that year. I and I went back and read all the classics too. Like I, I went back and read books that I kind of uh didn't get i don't know why i did this like i i got through like all my reading lists and then i went back and read like catcher in the rye catch 22 scarlet letter uh great gatsby it's just like i just went on a kick to like see some of the books i didn't like and then why i did and uh, i don't know i i and this is this is all way too too much information but i just like no it's not this is i I totally relate to this i think i think we all look we've we've all i mean for me it was i i was an accounting major and uh and even though i have no uh facility for numbers or anything else and uh and and you know as i tell uh kids all the time i i i knew that i wasn't uh, right for accounting that it wasn't right for me and it was just I found out that day that I'd failed out of oh, accounting yeah and uh and so you know and I just ended up um just sort of writing to a bunch of different people and saying hey help me I, I'm lost and and somehow some way ended up you know taking uh taking stats and 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 going to high school football games for the local paper and I mean that's you know yep. but during that time I remember that same feeling of wanting to read like everything, like all this stuff that I had not, you know, that I had ignored and not read when I was supposed to. Cause I'm like, well, this is how you become a writer, right? This is like, you need to read other like classic type stuff in order to figure out how to be a writer yourself. No, I think that's right. And I also would say that, um, you know, to tell people who are listening, who might feel a little lost or, because it can be overwhelming to think that maybe you've like devoted all this time towards one path and then it kind of blows up in your face or, you know, like you said, you fail an exam or you or you realize yeah. like realize your brain is just not cut out for organic chemistry or <laughs> you break up with the person or you divorce the person you thought you were going to be sure. with forever or something doesn't or you, or you lose a job and it's awful. But then like every time something like that's happened to me, it's it has led to. Um, some, I don't always, I don't necessarily want to say something better and be like kumbaya, but it's led right. to something I would not have had the opportunity to do before and then, and that I can't imagine my life without. So I just, you know, especially painful things, you know, like not getting that job you really wanted or, or yeah. something. Um, and I think pain forces you into the present moment and it kind of opens up possibilities. So I, and I know there's a lot of pain right now with people, um, obviously with the years that we've had. And, um, and I just think that there is, there is opportunity after, after going through that kind of, um, uh, frustration or pain or job loss or whatever it is, um, as, as, as if you can get through like the horrible depression and anxiety and everything that of course I've experienced, um, 
and hopefully maybe you could put yourself in a position to to find something that works even better for you um so just you know keep the faith on that front um yeah because joe and i joe and i both failed you know in our original (laughs) miserably miserably in our original (laughs) chosen career paths and we we, i guess we kind of turned out okay we, it worked out somehow, yeah. some way. And that's not to say, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's 100% right. It's just, it's just the hope, you know, the yeah. hope that, that it, that it will. But by the way, now I will never think of you uh, without thinking of like somebody in a bar, oh like just wanting to get a seven and seven and you're in the well, corner reading okay. like Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. The thing is I could pour a great <laughs> drink. I pour a stiff drink. That's not the problem. The problem is that all these dudes and they're usually dudes, you know, coming into the bar. They just yeah. wanted like someone to be their therapist. And I was reading oh. and I was reading my book. So that was the problem was not I was attentive and filling those drinks and they were stiff. Okay. The problem okay. was that I was just aloof. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I, I don't understand. I mean, look, I've watched Cheers too, but I don't yeah. know why. What, why is that your responsibility? I, it it's not is. your responsibility. Yeah. yeah. But that but that is the job. And so in that respect, I was not a great bartender. <laughs> great drink pourer. Great drink pourer. Not a great uh, listening to the same problems over and over and over again. But yes. <laughs> so who do you think is a, was a better bartender? You or AOC? Like, who do you think? Oh, like, AOC. You think she sure. was more attentive? She was more attentive well although she might have been had head in the clouds about everything she was going to change you know so it's hard to say (laughs) right i'll say we were we were both equally distracted (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it sounds like you but you will put up your own sort of physical drink pouring skills with anybody anybody for sure with anybody (laughs) (laughs) this is so good all right molly thank you so much this has been so awesome of course take care joe Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond. From iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities, that's the NBA, that's game. It's like game five of the NBA Finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks, Suns, in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side. Found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's Game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's Game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall, Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break, alley hoop to Giannis for an iconic slam, seals Game 5, and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Okay, so we have a very special checking in on the Cleveland Browns uh, this week. Uh, We're joined by Jason Lloyd, the editor-in-chief of The Athletic Cleveland. And uh, there is an amazing story uh, that is going to be on The Athletic, probably will be on The Athletic by the time that you Read this about the Browns move uh, from Cleveland to Baltimore 
25 years ago. Is that right, Jason? 25 years ago now. Is that right? 25 years ago Friday, yeah. November 6th. I can't believe I know. I can't. I know, right? It's insane. 25 years ago. All right, we're going to talk at length about that. But before we do that, since I've already have you here, we got to talk a little bit about the Browns this year. Uh, And uh, all right, they're going into the bye week. They're five and three. I, I guess if you're a Browns fan, I don't. Being a Browns fan my whole life, and and you you as well, uh, being a Browns guy all around the Browns, uh, I don't see how you can complain about it, right? I mean, you, they have a winning record for the first half of the season, and even though it feels like the team is not necessarily one you can count on, even though the five wins really came against five pretty mediocre teams and and all of that, it's a good first half, right? You take it, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, we, we everyone tried to fast track the process last year. Everyone thought you're going to add all this talent. O, o, OBJ's coming, and all of a sudden they're one of the Super Bowl favorites and everything else. But in realistic NFL progression, they're right on track. They, they're getting incrementally better every year. Are they a Super Bowl contender? No, <laughs> absolutely not. They are not going to the Super Bowl. They are not going to win the Super Bowl. No. And I think – they realize that, which is why they didn't try and make a big move at the deadline. Like they, they understand where they are in this process. The defense, what's what, what, what is wrong with the Browns defense can't be fixed at a trade deadline. No. So, so you, you roll with what you have. Uh, They're certainly better than they were last year. They're more organized. They're run by adults. Thank God. It's a different God bless Freddie kitchens. Yes. It's a different world. That's the part that I think as a Browns fan, you just it's it's it'd be hard to explain to people. I mean, obviously, if you talk to a Lions fan, I'm sure they would be able to feel it. Uh, some other teams as well, but not to the extent of 20. It feels like we've been held hostage for 20 plus years where it's like you never have any faith that the people running the team have any idea what they're doing. And and yeah, and they don't. Yeah. I was going to say you have a lot of faith in the last couple of coaches that they definitely don't know what they're doing. Uh, so <laughs> just to have a coach uh, in Kevin Stefanski and a staff and a, a front office now uh, with Andrew Barry and others that like, they just, they might not outsmart anybody. They might not be better than anybody. They might not win any, any coach of the year, GM of the year awards. I don't know. We, we, we don't know where that's going to go, but they're not incompetent. They know you, you go into a game with like, Oh, there's look at that. That looks like a game plan for how they plan to win this game. It just, it just feels entirely different to me. It looks like they're running the plays that they practiced during right. the week. And I know that's difficult, you know, it's not a very high bar, but that's what we have to work with because that wasn't even happening last year. They weren't even running the plays that they practiced. And even in the opening blowout, even when the Ravens blew them out, I watched that going, well, you know what? They're getting to the line with like 12 seconds left on the play <laughs> clock. It's, it's not a fire drill on the sidelines. Like it looks like an NFL team. It looks like they know what they're doing. So even it, it was so bad last year to this year, even when they get blown out, by the Ravens, it still looked better. You could still see the difference in last year to this year. And I, I I think they actually have a coach now in Kevin Stefanski who's going to be here next year. And he might even be here in 2022. Like I would lay heavy odds that he's probably going to be here for maybe like three years at least. And and when's the last time that we've had that? It's it's a whole new night, a whole new dynamic. It's not, it, it, you bring this up and this is a hundred percent right. 
it's not just that they fired so many coaches. It's that they've never had a coach in the last 10 years <laughs> who wasn't at least potentially going to get fired at the end of the year. Right. I mean, it was yeah. like, there was never, we're like, Hey, you know what? Positive year going into next year. Let's, uh, let's, let's, you know, I think the last time that happened was, uh, I mean, who knows when? So, so yeah, I think that that's, it feels there's a stability to this team that feels very, very different. And it does feel like, look, they're not very good. You mentioned that on the defense. You can't fix a defense uh, at a trade deadline where you need to get all new linebackers. And, you know, I mean, it's like, like that, that, that's tough to do. Like, yeah, we need five linebackers or so. Let's see if we can do that. And three defensive backs. <laughs> and, and probably a tackle. And a tackle, yeah. We need nine guys of our 11 if we can get those worked out. So we just, we just want Miles Garrett and, 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 and uh, Ward. We, those two guys we want still, but the rest yes. of them, you know, can go. Yes. So obviously it's, it's, uh, you're not going to fix all of these things right now, but they also do feel better than bad teams. Like that, like it's been a long time since that. So like they feel like when they go up against uh, a team, that's not very good. Like they're probably going to win. Like they're, yes. they are, they are an average team now, which is light years ahead of where they've been. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you look at the defensive ratings, it, it's, it is what it is. Like the teams they're down, in, in the defensive rankings with teams that have like one win. That's right. how bad they are defensively, right. but they're beating teams that they should beat, yeah. And that is a rarity in Cleveland. At least when you know that there's a dysfunctional team coming in, you're probably going to beat them. Where in the past you were that dysfunctional team that everyone is excited to see you coming to town. And at least, and again, it's incremental steps. It's baby steps. Last year for as awful as it was, was better than the Hugh years. Yes. This year is better than last year. So it's, they're, they're growing. It's an incremental process. I'm not ready to declare Baker's the franchise quarterback. I don't think, you know, he's got a long ways to go, Yeah, but he's at least right now, for the most part, aside from the Steelers game, he's putting them in position to win games and he's limiting turnovers. And for right now, that's good enough. Yeah, and look, that's going to be a really interesting thing. And this will be the sort of the last thing we talk about about this Browns team before we go back in time a little bit. But at some point, of course, the Browns are going to have to make a decision about whether to whether to go all in or cut bait on Baker Mayfield. And yep. it won't be easy. It will not be easy because you are getting so many different contrasting things from Baker Mayfield, right? I mean, I think that there are so many things about him that are so likable uh you know he is a presence he's he's a guy that uh when when the team when he's playing well the team is really good i mean offensively against the bengals i mean he was just they were just unstoppable absolutely unstoppable and he can he can reach that level at times he's athletic he's he's pretty good on the move and then there are other times you're like, it's clearly not him, right? He's in the pocket. Yeah. He's making, he's, he's locking on to receivers. He's making poor decisions. He's, he's jumpy. And you go, well, that's not a franchise quarterback. That's going to be a very, very difficult decision for the Browns, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my thing all year has been, hey, let's give this guy more than one year in a system. Yes. You know, he, the, to, through no fault of his own, he has had zero stability. He's had so many different coordinators and head coaches. As soon as he starts to figure out one system, it's gone and another one's coming in. But having said, and let me also say, I, Stefanski's system in time is perfect for him. Kevin understands how to get him in position. And something I found really interesting against in, in the Bengals game 
in the first quarter, all of Baker's throws were down the field. And mm-hmm. it was like they came out ripping it. And he, Kareem Hunt dropped one screen, but everything else was down the field. And he had zero completions at the end of the first quarter. And all of a sudden, in the second quarter, it's, it's, a, it's a bootleg. And it's a, yep. little, it's, a, it's a pass in the seam. And it's these little easy throws to kind of get them rolling. And I asked Kevin after the game, it looked like you scrapped what you had originally decided in the first quarter and just wanted to get him rolling in the second quarter. And I couldn't believe it. Kevin said, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what we did. And, and you, and you, it's kind of baby steps. Like this isn't Aaron Rodgers. You're not just going to come out ripping it. Same with Patrick Mahomes. Baker's quarterback rating. This is jarring to me. And I didn't update this before the, after the Raiders game. So going into the Raiders game, Baker's quarterback rating against the Bengals in his career is 111. Against the rest of the NFL, it's 83. Wow. So that tells you what you need to know. Do you really want to commit big-time money to a guy with a quarterback rating of 83 when he's playing everybody except the Bengals? That's where you've got to see growth. But again, he's had zero stability. He's had so much thrown at him in such a little amount of time. You would hope, you would hope that as he gets comfortable in the system – we have reason to believe these guys aren't going anywhere now. He's going to be in this for a while, and you would hope that you would start to see growth. But to this point, 111 against the Bengals, 83 against everybody else. Yeah, I mean, and it's very clear. I mean, it's very clear. And I think the big reason that he has been so successful against the Bengals, obviously the Bengals are not very good, but also the Bengals have no pass rush. And and right. that has been, to me, when he has time, and I mean time, you know, when he right. is when he has a big bubble around him, there's nobody even sort of within swatting distance of him. He's very, very good, you know, and and obviously there are probably are other quarterbacks that would be very good with that kind of with that kind of protection and all that. But still, he's very, very good. But you start getting a swarm around him and it's just much touchier. And and, you know, I think it's going to be very interesting, but I think it cannot be overstated what you said. Look, I think a lot of people think of Baker as, as cocky, and he is, and, and you know, as a guy that, that is very, very sure of himself, and to some degree he is on that front. But when you have dealt with three different offensive coordinators, and not just three different offensive coordinators, offensive coordinators who are feuding, who are fighting yep. the coaches, uh, yep. nobody really knows who's in charge. You know, everybody's, you got a head coach who is your offensive coordinator, but then you have an offensive coordinator who's like, who knows what they do. You have different quarterback uh, coaches, including one that, you know, Ken Zempezi, it all seemed to be going great. And then he gets fired. And when you have that kind of mess all around you and the expectations are so high, um, yeah, I, I want to see this guy full year in a system that, one, seems like a very smart and sensible system for him, and two, is not going to change. We know who's in charge now. We know who uh, the Cleveland Browns, uh, you know, who they're, what they're going to look like. We know who their, who their head coach is. We know who their offensive coordinator is. We know what system they're going to run. And, you know, I think the last eight games of this season – are pretty important for the future of Baker Mayfield. I think, you know, not, I did not think he played poorly against the Raiders. I really didn't. I thought he really, uh, he, he, he was, he was the victim of some drops, key drops. And I thought he played okay in that game and obviously was fantastic against the Bengals. And I feel like we'll see the second half of this year, but I think it's really important for him. Yeah. He's got a, he's, he, confidence is so big to his game. Yeah. And again, I go back to the Bengals game. He had no confidence in the first quarter. He started to get it rolling a little bit in the second quarter with some of the easy throws. And in the second half, 
Baker made some big boy throws against the Bengals that I haven't seen him make since his rookie year. Yeah. The the back shoulder throws, the the game winning touchdown down the sideline. These are throws that we haven't seen from him in a while. He's got to get his confidence back because it just looks to me he doesn't trust his eyes. He doesn't trust what he sees. He bail. You talk about clean pockets, and he's got to be really, really protected. And you're right. As soon as he starts to sense someone's coming or there's a rush coming, he bails on the pockets too soon. Yeah. But again, it all goes back to confidence. He's got it. He's they, they have to. I mean, that's really where it starts for me is you have to rebuild Baker's confidence because when he's feeling himself and it's rolling, it's really, really good. But as soon as he starts to doubt what he's seeing, that's when it really starts to unravel on him. Absolutely. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live. Another that lets you stream your favorite shows. You're watching sports highlights on your phone and... You've got your neighbor's best friend's login (laughs) for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part? There's no annual contract. Yes, No annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. This episode is brought to you by BetMGM. Sign up today with BetMGM, the exclusive betting partner of The Athletic, and get a $1,000 risk-free first bet. Plus, Get a free three-month subscription to The Athletic. Just sign up at betmgm.com slash theathleticpod, that's P-O-D, to take advantage of this special offer from the kings of sportsbooks. That's betmgm.com slash theathleticpod, P-O-D. New customer offer, paid in bonus dollars. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Cue the disclaimer. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia only. Excludes Michigan disassociated persons. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, Nevada, and Virginia. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. In Tennessee, call or text the red line at 800-889-9789. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Promotional offer not available in Nevada. All right, let's talk about this story that is coming out. Is it coming out Friday morning in the Friday uh, morning. In the Athletic? Okay. Yep. Uh, and uh, the story is about the Cleveland Browns move uh, in 1995 from from Cleveland to Baltimore uh, to become the Baltimore Ravens. It's it's great. I, I mean, I've I've gotten a pre read on it. It's it's wonderful. Uh, and I think for this Browns fan here, it is it is pretty eye-opening. I mean, it's not like I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Of course, you know, as a very close observer, I did, but there's stuff in there I didn't know. And I think that the key from this thing is figuring out, you know, here's in, in Cleveland, you know, I was there for the last game uh, uh, against the Bengals at home at one of the, one of the saddest places I've ever been in my entire yeah. life, Cleveland Municipal Stadium, you know, people yeah. tearing seats out and throwing stuff yep. on the field. And and of course, I was covering the game. I was writing about it, but I felt the same way. And and it was just, you know, it was it was stealing the heart of Cleveland. And I think a lot of people, many people, 
and I'm, I'll, I'll admit falling into this trap myself, sort of had the story down. I mean, this is Art Modell being greedy and, and stealing the team and taking, taking this team that had, uh, had, had meant so much to the city. Nobody knew more about how much the Browns meant to the city than Art Modell. Taking the team to Baltimore, betraying the city, betraying all of us, and uh, and you know this story really it doesn't it it's not like Art Modell comes off blameless in this story, but this story really recasts exactly what happened and why the Browns left Cleveland. Yeah, I was I was 19 when they left in '95, and I was I was at the game just as a fan, and and I, I I'm with you. I was standing next to the people carrying out Ugh. large chunks of the sections. <laughs> the police were had saws and helping them rip yeah. the seats out. Like it was it was just an, it was just an, it's one of those things that you remember the rest of your life. And it's funny because as we're going through as we're reporting this out, and as we're as we pull a thread and then we pull another thread, and hey. Al Lerner's involved in this and Al Lerner's involved in that. And it became like, I, I was telling Zach Meisel, who I, who I wrote it with, and, and we had a bunch of editors on this. Jason Jenks was invaluable to us uh, in, in, in kind of pointing out things. And, and as we're talking about this, I was like, you know, I was 19 when they left and I was a sports fanatic. And there was so much of this that I didn't know, or yeah. I didn't realize, you know, Al Lerner, um, talking to Baltimore in the eighties, Art Modell talking to Baltimore in the eighties about, you know, the possibility of an expansion team and, and Lerner chasing an expansion team for Baltimore in 93 Lerner taking Mike Brown to yeah. Baltimore. That blew me away. And, 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 you know, real quick. So Lerner, the, the Bengals are going through a dispute with the city of Cincinnati about getting a new stadium. And Mike Brown is thinking about leaving. And so Tom Chema, who worked for the Gateway, uh, who worked on the project who, that built the Indians in the, in the Cavaliers arenas in the 90s, goes down to work for Cincinnati when those projects are done, goes down to work for Mike Brown. And Tom Chema tells me, yeah, Mike told me that, you know, Al flew down in his plane to Cincinnati and picked him up and took him to Baltimore for a meeting. And, and everybody I talked to, that was the, oh my God moment of yeah. nobody had any idea. I talked to people who knew Al for decades, who told me, I didn't know that. You're telling me things about Al that I never knew. And, and and really, so you connect all the dots. And by the way, the Bengals denied this. The Bengals said this trip never happened. And and that's fine. You know, we put their denial in there. But Tom would have no reason to lie to me about this. Right. Uh, he, he would have no reason to make this up. There's nothing for him to gain personally from this. But if you connect all the dots on this, if Al can get the Bengals out of Cincinnati, Al can go to Cincinnati and get a team. This is a man who could buy anything he wanted in life. He could have, there's nothing he couldn't afford except he couldn't get into the NFL. That was the one thing that he wanted was an NFL team. And he, he thought the way that art ran the Browns was terrible. There was too much emotion involved. And he thought it had to be, you know, you, you run by the numbers, you let the numbers lead you. So he thought he could like come in and really sort of revolutionize the way NFL teams ran. He wanted an NFL team in the worst possible way, and he would do anything to get it. So the the Maryland authorities reach out to the Browns. They call Art twice. Art ignores the call. But through mutual acquaintances, of course, Al knows that Baltimore is interested. So Al's the one in the background that keeps goading Art. Hey, just talk to Baltimore. Just talk to him. Just talk to him. Just hear what they have to say. Just hear him out. You don't have to do anything. Just use it as a frame of reference for 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 the Cleveland negotiations. And Art finally concedes and says, "Okay, you talk to them, but make sure that they know that you know it's nothing serious. It's it's very loose." And all of a sudden, 
within a span of about three weeks, we go from make sure they know it's not serious to there's an agreement and they're going to Baltimore. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. I mean, you know, the for, for those of, of, of you who are, you know, Browns fans or not Browns fans, you know, it, it Art Modell was was front and center in, in for a lot of reasons, including the fact that Art Modell was one of the most prominent uh, owners in, in football because of his uh, relationship to television. You know, he was yep. the one who came up with the Monday Night Football and and, yep. and was probably more influential uh, than any other owner when it came to building these gigantic television contracts. We used to laugh about this, and I'm sure you you did this well growing up there. Um you never saw a Browns game where they didn't cut up to the booth where you could see that Art Modell in his in his uh, in his you know fur coat, his little gray. Yep, you know, yep, you, yep, you always yep. saw Art Modell every single week. So, so and you know, and it was Modell's decision at the end. But as you point out in this story, which I just found to be fascinating, one, not many people would even connect Al Lerner to this. You know, Al Lerner, of course, ends up with the expansion Browns, buys the expansion Browns. And, and, you know, really did a pretty decent job of covering the tracks of his role in moving the Browns out of Cleveland in the first place, which is, it's astonishing that the, with the bitterness of the city that, you know, rightful bitterness of the city losing the Browns, that they would then award the team to the guy who, who helped move the Browns out of Cleveland in the first place. It's, it's, it really is an, a staggering thing. And, 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 you know, I, I want you to talk about that in a minute, but the, the second element of this thing is, and it has to be said, and, and you're talking to a guy who has written plenty of angry words about Art Modell through the years. Very, very angry words. But Art Modell was in trouble financially, yes. emotionally. He was in trouble in Cleveland. And, and you can talk about this. And look, there were other ways, as you point out in the story, for him to get out of trouble. He didn't have to move the team. Like they, He could have gone to the NFL and, and some things could have been done. But Al Lerner and, and Baltimore and others really did feed upon a guy who uh, really didn't see a way out. Art was a terrible businessman. A terrible, terrible businessman. He made bad deal after bad deal after bad deal. You go back to the, first of all, he bought the Browns for like two hundred fifty thousand dollars because he right. borrowed the rest in 1961. I mean, imagine I, I know we're going back 60 years, but imagine buying an NFL team for the cost of a, of a house. <laughs> right. So he, he puts up two hundred thousand of his own two hundred fifty thousand of his own money, borrows like cobbles together all of these loans and whatever else for the other three point seven million to buy the team. And he just was chasing his tail for for 35 years. So the stadium's falling apart. The stadium was built in the 30s. And in 1974, when the stadium was 40 years old, the city couldn't keep up anymore on maintenance. Rather than anybody at the time saying, hey, maybe we should build something new, Art's like, no, 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 I got this. (laughs) So he he creates this company, Stadium Corp, that is going to become the landlord over the stadium. He thinks it's a great deal because he can negotiate the terms of the lease and what he's going to pay for the Browns rent. He can overcharge the Indians because they're now his landlord. Everything's great. And he's going to borrow this money and he's going to put in suites and he's going to put in this new scoreboard. And then they get in and they start pulling out the walls and they see that like the, the load bearing structures, like these beams (laughs) that are holding the stadium up are like the width of a pencil. So now that all the money that he was going to do to renovations now has to go in just to keep the thing standing. Yeah. So now he's rolling bad loan and a bad loan and a bad loan and a bad loan. And now he's up to his eyeballs in debt. And he basically reached the debt ceiling that NFL owners place on 
on, on that the NFL places on its owners, which I, I can't remember now if it was 40 million or 50 million. He was at the top. There was nowhere else to go. The water was over his head and the city didn't help him very much. And, nope. and this was a difficult story to write because you said it earlier. We didn't want this to be an apology piece for art. And you don't want art to come off as the martyr in this. Yet at the same time, I, I spoke to Jim, to Jim Bailey, who was like art's right-hand man the whole time. And art, er, Jim told me like, nobody would listen to us. Like we, they just got absolutely destroyed in the media. And it was a bloodbath every day. And nobody would listen to their side of the story. And their side of the story was, you know, they had a mayor who promised them, listen, I'm going to help you. Let's get, let's finish Gateway first. Let's get the Indians fixed and the Cavs fixed. I will help you, but I need you to promise me that you're not going to threaten to move and you're not going to talk to any other politicians. Let me handle all the politics. Mike White wanted to be the Lone Ranger in this, the mayor at the time. And Art agreed to those conditions. And that took away all of his leverage because nobody ever thought the Browns would move. And how did Mike Brown end up getting a stadium built in Cincinnati? Because he took a trip to Baltimore where everybody knew about it in June of 95, everybody knew that Mike Brown was flirting with the city of Baltimore, and boom, just like that, they get legislation passed within the city of Cincinnati to build him a new stadium. That never happened here. So Art is saying things publicly like, I would never rape the city. I'm never going to leave the team. I'm never going to lose. I'm never going to move this team. Okay, fine. Well, then there goes all of your leverage because nobody understands the severity of the situation. Nobody knows how much trouble you're in financially. And, and while he's saying all that publicly – Privately, he's telling everybody, we're leaving if this doesn't get fixed. And his people were telling, you know, Jim Bailey was telling people within Cleveland, we have to address this. And, and Bailey said, Tim Hagan, the county commissioner at the time, said, don't even try and tell me the Browns would leave because the NFL would never allow that to happen. So the city very much dropped the ball on this. And, and you know, you can look at this and say, why, did they, why were they so obsessed with bringing the Cavs downtown? Why didn't they just take that money and fix the Browns? Well, and, and not to go on too long of a tangent down too many rabbit holes, the quick answer to that is they were never going to pass the gateway referendum without the caps. It was yeah. going to fail. So just building a new baseball park wasn't enough, and the Indians were leaving. So in order to save the Indians, they had to go pull the Cavs in from, from the suburbs and bring them downtown and give them this unbelievable deal. So then Gateway passes with 51% of the vote. It barely passed, and there's right. no way it passes without the Cavs. So that's why they had to pull the Cavs in. And, and, and this from Tom Chema's perspective, one of the guys, again, I talked to on Gateway, he was like, hey, this thing was a huge success. If Art could have just given us a couple years, Cleveland didn't have a ton of money. You know that, and I know that. They, they felt like they couldn't go back to the voters right away. And even there was an initiative on the ballot to extend – uh, the syntax that they used to build those two facilities. And the vote was actually the day after the Browns announced they were leaving and it was going down. It was, it was going, going to fail. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then when the team was announced, they were leaving as, as sort of an FU to the Browns, it passed like it, it, it passed <laughs> with flying colors, but, the, but the city felt like if art could just give us a couple of years, let people get comfortable with Gundarina and with Jacobs field, these brand new facilities in Cleveland, which were long overdue, let them understand how much they love them. Then we can come back and hit them again for more money in a couple of years and we can fix this. But by that point, it was too late and Art was so far in over his head, he had to act immediately. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all of that, all of that, absolutely. I mean, like I say, it's, it's, it really is a pretty fascinating story if you look at it. I mean, it's, it's, it's been told very, very simply. Uh, Art, greedy, uh, was so bad with money, you know, 
basically dug his own grave and then and then bailed out of Cleveland, uh, you know, basically betraying 35 years of the city's loyalty and love. And that story is not untrue. It's right. just a very partial part of the story. By the way, uh, having grown up uh, in Cleveland and, and having spent, you know, some of my favorite days uh, of my childhood at Municipal Stadium, the fact that the Browns, uh, uh, that Art Modell, that anybody was unaware that that stadium was crumbling before your very right? eyes. I mean, I was nine. I could see like, what is that? Asbestos falling from the sky? I mean, that, the place was, that place was a dump. I mean, it was a lot. I loved it. I loved the dump, but it was a dump. It was not like anybody could look to that stadium and thought, yeah, you know what? I, what I want to inherit are the, is the maintenance on this place. I mean, that, that was not the best of moves for Art Modell. No, the stadium was 40 years old when he signed that deal. There was a toilet that leaked into his office. (laughs) There was a toilet in the upper deck that used to leak into his office. And he said, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I can take this over. I I got this. I got this. Oh, my. Just a terrible businessman. You know, everyone who knew him swears what what a wonderful man he was, how emotional he was. He led with emotion. If you needed a dollar, he'd give you two. And that's sort of what got him into the problem that he was because he was he may have been a good guy. He was an awful businessman and it caught up with him at the end and he lost the team anyway. Like that goes overlooked in this as well, that yeah. he fi- the, the NFL basically forced him out anyway after he got to Baltimore. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I think let's, let's wrap it up with this because you, you already talked a bit about Al Lerner, but I, I did find it very, very compelling in this story. Um, Al Lerner was you know, he might've been the key force behind this. I mean, look, something was going to give at one point. Art Modell could not keep going the way he was going. Cleveland was absolutely dragging its feet on, on a team that is way more important to the city. Let's be honest than any other. Right. I mean, the, the, yep. there's no, as much as I grew up loving the Indians and, 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 and of course the Cavs uh, and, you know, LeBron came later and changed some of that dynamic. You could, you could combine, their, uh, you know, their, their support and multiply it by five. And you still don't have what the Browns are in Cleveland. So, so, you know, it, it, you, you got to blame the city for dragging its feet. They, you can't put an owner, even in the position to consider leaving the city. So, so I think there's a lot of, of people here that, that are, have to look in the mirror and say, this is why it happened. But it's pretty clear that Al Lerner, uh, one, he's the one guy that has the real connection between Cleveland and Baltimore, right? He is, his businesses were both very connected to those cities as well as New York. And two, he did one in as an owner and, and was, and had tried in Baltimore and failed to, to become the Baltimore owner. And, uh, and three, he had worked out relationships with guys like Mike White when he was the mayor and put himself in position to, to get himself a football team. I mean, it's, it looks pretty stark for Al Lerner when you t- retell this story. Yeah, it's it's it, it was so enjoyable as a reporter to kind of connect the dots and put the pieces together. And and, and Al's plane, you know, Al's plane is such a weapon <laughs> against yes. Cleveland in this. And and you know, everyone knows the part about Al used his plane to, and that's where the deal was signed. That's where the agreement was reached. But, you know, here we come to find out first Al, you know, really got in with our, they were business associates to begin with, but Al started using his plane to fly art around before they were even partners within the Browns. 
Al used his plane again, according to Tom Chema, to fly down to Cincinnati and take Mike Brown to Baltimore to get a team. Al used his plane to go to Baltimore for the original meeting on behalf of the Browns in, in, in 95, I think it was. Um, and they met on a, on an airport runway there. Al used his plane again for the, like, it's Al in his plane, Al in his plane, Al in his plane, all throughout this whole thing. And Al Lerner is hailed today as the savior of football in Cleveland. And, and people were mad at him at the time. You know, sure. he took a lot of heat. It, but he kind of threw his hands up and said, hey, listen, I was just trying to help out a friend and I let him use my plane just this one time, you know. <laughs> and and here when you really pull back the curtain and look, Al's hailed as the hero. All that was forgiven when the Browns came back in 99 and he got the team. He's the He, he is the driving force. I'm not going to say he's the number one reason he left because he's not. He was the driving force behind all of this. It's really fascinating. Great story in The Athletic. It should be up by the time you uh, by the time we do this. Jason, thank you so much. Hope you'll come back. Anytime, Joe. Thanks for having me. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond from iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities. That's the NBA. That's game. It's like game five of the NBA finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks Suns in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side, found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game.